Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Most Americans have probably heard of approximately 10 candidates, but the reality was that hundreds of people filed to run for president. When I filed as an example, like it got absolutely zero notice because it's just like Andrew Yang is running for president. It's like, who gives a shit? Like no one knows who that was because it's like November, 2017. Um, so the rules around filing are primarily social is what I'm suggesting that the, the actual rules just about anyone can satisfy, but the, the real rules are the um, institutional rules, the media rules, the DNC's rules in this case. When did they finally start noticing you? When you're like, oh, this guy's actually not messing around and he's going to do something. This was another entrepreneurship thing. The DNC set rules up to make the debates. And then I was like, what's the rule? What's the rule? Like 65,000 donations. <laughs> All right, let's go do that. Let's go do that. Like it was, it was a lot of fun on that level as a campaign because they would like set up a bar for you. And then you were like, let's go get it. I was passing people that we knew they wanted in the debate. Um, so as long as I did that, it was like the old joke about like, you know, I don't need to outrun the bear. I just need to outrun the person next to me. <laughs> like, like as long as I was outrunning someone that I knew they wanted to keep, then like I, I, I was going to be all right. That's so funny. That's such a great analogy to describe that. Because it is weird for us at home where they're like, here's the, here's like the, Here's the varsity. Uh, and then here's JV. Oh, that JV guy, he got up to varsity. And then that one varsity guy, he's down to freshman basketball. Andrew, this blew up my weekend. <laughs> <laughs> There's an outbreak and we have to do an episode. <laughs> very, very late Thursday night. Uh, I get a text. This is a true story. Uh, I, I'm not that to um, out him. Uh, I don't think he'll care. <laughs> but, but so so uh, Ken Jong texts me uh, and he's like, hey, I'm reading the tea leaves and I think Trump has COVID. Um, and so he does this literally like an hour before the announcement comes out. Wow, and, then the, the, and then the announcement comes out. And then I was like, Oh my gosh, like he was right. Trump has COVID. Uh, and wow. now uh, it just shaken up a lot of things. Uh, I mean, we, we thought the debate was going to be the news of the week, but then that's been dwarfed by uh, this diagnosis. Uh, and so the, the question is, what does this mean? And, you know, there are a lot of things it means on many, many levels. Uh, first, no one wants anyone to get sick. Like ha having human beings contract the coronavirus is a terrible thing. Uh, too many people have lost loved ones and friends and family. Uh, so mm -hmm. it, it's just 
it, it's terrible news, no matter like who it is or uh, uh, who it affects. Um, this is the president, and this is going to have big repercussions beyond um, people in his personal life, obviously. Uh, and so the first big question is, how does this impact the election and the campaign schedule coming up? And one cannot look at this any other way but say that this is terrible, terrible news for the Trump campaign uh, on so many levels. Number one, there's the messaging component where uh, it's very, very hard to get anyone to talk about anything but coronavirus when the candidate literally has the coronavirus uh, and is under medical care for that. So that's that, that's enormously problematic. Uh, number two, the operations of the campaign essentially grind to a halt where the candidate is no longer doing events. Uh, and and to be on the operational front is a campaign manager now has the coronavirus. Uh, if you are on this team, you're looking around being like, wait a minute, like I, I was in a meeting with that person not that long yep. ago. Um, so it, it's going to throw the entire uh the, the entire staff into disarray or remote work or some degree of uh, stress and anxiety. So so mm-hmm. there there's like a massive, massive uh, wrench in the works uh, of of what is essentially like a billion dollar business um, where you're taking the leadership team and the candidate who, as we know, is uh, both the product and the uh the quote, quote unquote CEO um, offline. Um, so it's going to be a, a massive, massive problem. And then you also have the fact that the government of the United States is is being uh, scrambled where the president is in the hospital. Uh, you're going to be very concerned about the vice president's schedule because you're looking around saying like, well, shoot, like whatever we thought we might do, um, we might want to rethink it. And you have, I believe, three Republican senators who've all been diagnosed in part because they were meeting with White House staff. Uh, so that Chris Christie the, just got diagnosed too, man. It's just, there's a lot of them. Yeah, the, well, there's a there's talk now that it might uh, stall the Supreme Court proceedings too because you might not be able to get a majority of Republican uh, senators. So there, there are massive impacts to this. Uh, you can't overstate it. Uh, and... If you're rooting for uh, for Trump to win, this is just terrible news. Like some people suggest that, oh, maybe there'll be some uh, humanization or sympathy vote or these other things. Uh, I, I am struggling to see that. Like that that strikes me as like very much groping for a silver lining. Uh, if you're if you're on that side, um, so that that's the impact I see from the election standpoint. Right. And the government standpoint and the governance standpoint. If the Republicans had and Trump had a message in 2020, it was Corona's not a big deal or it'll be over soon and troll the libs is kind of what it is. The ribs are liberals are radical left and they suck and um, make fun of them and stay away from them and be scared of them, whatever it is. Uh, those messages are very tough to do when you have coronavirus. <laughs> as the leader of the free world, right? Like, I think that's the impact to me. Um, I don't, I hesitated, like, trying to make too many conclusions from this because I think there's so much up in the air. Um, To me, where what actually may be a death knell for the president, maybe, um, was this, there's there's a lot of holes in this timeline to me that are really frustrating that I would love, that reporters are scrambling at the bottom of now where 
The Biden team did not find out from the Trump administration they tested positive. There's a chance the doctors today, where this is Saturday the 3rd, when we record this, the doctors said that we we started um, essentially, it's been a 70, 72 hours since he was diagnosed. And if that is the case, then that means he was doing fundraisers while knowing he had tested positive for COVID without telling anyone. And that to me is really dangerous. And, um, it seems it seems pretty clear that he it seems pretty clear that he attended at least one fundraiser in New Jersey, uh, knowing that he, he was knowing positive. He was positive, which is so dark yeah. and twisted. Um, and that's frustrating to me because that's your base. You know what I'm saying? Like those donors, like like those are your people. That's like us doing that to the Yang gang. You know what I'm saying? It's like, yo, guys, yeah, we might just infect you all right you know, or, now. Or on the flip side, if you were a guest, you like show up to support him and, you know, you – uh, let's say pay money and travel and subject yourself yeah. to some things. And it turns out that uh, you were putting yourself at risk by doing so in a way that was very real <laughs> and, yeah. uh, uh, and concrete. Then, yeah, that, that, you know, like Evelyn said, she'd be incredibly angry uh, in, in that circumstance uh, if you were supporting someone and, and um, that was the choice that they'd made. So I agree with you. The timeline is going to come out. I think journalists are going to keep digging on this. There's some journalists who are also in the same room as people who tested positive and might not mm-hmm. have been notified as such. Uh, so that they're going to be uh, new stories and findings throughout. I'm sure more people will end up testing positive too, because it seems like you have a, a fairly, uh, a, a fairly clear, uh, mini outbreak going through through this network of people who are in close quarters quite often, traveling together quite often. I mean, like we, we talk about, frankly, the people we've heard of where you're like, oh, Hope Hicks was on the plane. Uh, Trump was on the plane. Melania was on the train plane. There are a lot of people that we don't, we've never heard of that were on the plane, you know, right. just like there are a lot of people that uh, work in the White House uh, that you know, you don't hear about because they're not household names. So there are just a lot of human beings that are within the, um, the vicinity that uh, I, I believe are going to be very concerned and some of them are going to test positive. And so, so we're, we're going to continue to see stories in part because the way coronavirus works is that uh, it's really difficult to track down in these circumstances where it takes multiple days to um, show symptoms. In some cases it takes some time for even to, to, for the tests to be able to show results. Uh, that's why they are always recommending these two week quarantines as like the gold standard. Right. And a, a lot of these folks may not, uh, be in position where they can quarantine that long. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that's. Um, have you ever been somewhere where there's an outbreak? Even if you don't have it, it wrecks your life because you have to quarantine and you're worried that you're carrying it. Even if you don't have symptoms, like this is super frustrating. If you're like, if I knew if it, this happened to us on the campaign, it would be like uh, one of the more frustrating. It, it's it's a it, it's a derailment four weeks for an election, right? Um, the the one thing I will say, I just want to be very very clear. Look. We don't like Donald Trump. I think what he's done to, and I think you agree with this, Andrew, what he's done to downplay this virus and how he's handled the, the pandemic has been a travesty um, and has caused more people to, to straight up die. That said, humanity first, like he's a human being. Like I don't, I wish him a speedy recovery. I wish his wife's speedy recovery. All the people affected, to be very clear. We don't, we don't, I, we, I, I, yeah, we, we don't, about stuff too, but we don't, we don't wish on ill on anyone. You, you, you right. don't wish, uh, you know, sickness and and worse on anyone and i you know i said it's like i both hope and expect that he'll make a recovery um he's certainly going to get the best care in the world um so if anyone has a chance to come back from this it it would be the president 
Uh, so I agree with you, Zach, that, uh, no, that like that there is, uh, there's no good that comes out of anyone becoming sick with a coronavirus. Right. Agreed. Um, so we wish, we wish them a speedy recovery. This election is, uh, buckle up, right? Like TBD, what happened to me? I, I don't, I don't think we can say for certain how this shapes the race. Um, because there's still a whole bunch of things in the air, still a whole bunch of things we don't know. And there's a whole bunch of things that haven't happened yet. We don't know how serious it is for the president, for his staff and other things. I think what it does do is it it confirms the judgment of people who uh, want to treat the coronavirus very, very seriously and advocate mm-hmm. for wearing masks and social distancing and public health measures. Uh, like that narrative uh, to me is very clear where uh, a majority of Americans obviously agree with with the fact that we should be doing things to try and safeguard each other's health, uh, and and that 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 point of view is being bolstered by facts, by uh, events. Uh, how that impacts the election, I'm going to suggest it it cannot be good for uh, the president that this has consumed all the news cycles, uh, and that you no, know, right now he's uh, uh, under. Uh, strict medical care and, and Walter Reed. Uh, but it, it's clear that the coronavirus as a public health crisis is front and center and will be for the foreseeable. If he's running on his ability to lead in a pandemic, um, having an outbreak in your own White House is probably counterproductive, right? Um, so we'll see. Look, I mean, this stuff doesn't tend to stick to the Donald way. It sticks to other types of people. So um, that'll be the fun part. I will say this, like having... There are photos from that, and obviously video from that, um, from Amy um, Coney Barrett, the Supreme Court nominee, a new nominee's event at Notre Dame University. There are photos from that event where you're just seeing a whole bunch of people packed together with no masks. That is, to me, utterly ridiculous that you're doing that in the middle of a global pandemic, right? Like the fact that there's no social distancing or mask wearing whatsoever, and then everybody gets COVID there. There's pictures, like Politico has a picture of everybody who's been diagnosed with COVID so far. They just shade them in red. And there's like, you know, six people already. They're senators and, and prominent people. The president of Notre Dame has it. Like, this is ridiculous to me. So, um, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, I think we have our predictions. And look, Yang Speaks will be covering the whole way, right? So I um, hope you guys tune in. Stay safe and uh, take this very seriously because uh, it's clear that that leaders who've tried to advocate for a cautious approach have been right. Yeah. So we recorded this on Saturday as soon as we frankly could get together and, and talk about what's happening here. We also have the rest of our episode, which we recorded earlier, um, which you guys will enjoy. It's also great. It just doesn't t- talk about the president getting COVID, which just happened. So enjoy it, guys. Um, we'll move on. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy in that I knew if you're going to spend eight hours doing something, you should probably invest in doing it right. That's why I love Helix Sleep, which will send a mattress to your door that's made just for you. You take the Helix Sleep quiz and you get matched with a mattress based upon whether you want it to be soft, medium, firm, how you sleep, other variables, and then voila, it gets sent to your door and you can try it for up to 100 nights 
and send it back. They have a 10 plus year warranty because they believe in their product so much. I do too, my kids do too. They actually seek out this mattress even though it was designed not for them. <laughs> That's how good this product is. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple chiropractors and doctors because they think it'll make you healthier. Don't take my word for it. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang and use code helixpartner20. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. All right, we're back, Andrew. Yes, we are back digesting the first presidential debate, which was a horror show because of the continuing uh, sense of aggrievement from our current president, uh, where he just devolved before our very eyes. Uh, and no one can convince me or any uh, reflective person that this was part of some grand plan or that this was uh, going to be positive for Trump. Um, so... Despite the unpleasantness of the situation uh, on, a, on a viewing level, I became very positive where I said, well, Joe walked in with a lead. He's walking out with, in my opinion, a slightly bigger lead. I think it's going to depress turnout for, for some fence sitters. Uh, and so I became positive about the night, despite the fact that it was uh, very difficult to watch and bad for America to see our current president uh, softly, tacitly approve white supremacists and call into question uh, mail-in voting and a bunch of other things that are really awful. Uh, but despite the awfulness, I came out feeling good because really there were there was only one major uh, catalyst left, in my opinion, on the schedule, which was this debate. Because let's say you're down, and you and I have been in this position, mm -hmm. Zach, Let's say that voting starts in a number of weeks. You have a lot of eggs in this basket if you're down. Um, and uh, they do not take advantage at all. Uh, and so I feel great because uh, I, I think our uh, chances of keeping this country uh, functioning um, went up. Because if, if we can wrest control of the White House from Trump uh, in November, then we give ourselves a chance. I'm still very concerned about November and the mechanics of voting, but uh, despite the unpleasantness, uh, the debate was a positive night for the chances of turning the page. So for those of you who missed the presidential debate, um, you didn't miss much. Well, I mean, you missed, I, I, I mean, it happened, so you missed that, but it was, it was, um, I'll quote CNN. So, you know, we, you work for CNN, but they, they, you know, I've, I've got my qualms CNN, but generally I really like them. Um, and so the direct quote from Jake Tappers was that this was a hot mess inside a dumpster fire inside a train wreck. And then Dana Bash went so far as, and Dana, I don't think she normally curses on air. She goes, that was a shit show and did not, didn't like bleep that out. Just straight up said it was a shit show. Um, here's my thought, Andrew, and I, I really want your thoughts on this. Um, my gut reaction, and, and I was probably Yang Gang, if you've supported Andrew in the primary... I wonder if you felt this way too. I was heartbroken. It broke my heart because in in its weird own way, the debate was why we ran. And like, we were trying to prevent 
this catastrophic burning of the country. And look, that's that's not really on on Joe. I think most of the, the shittiness of that debate was, was on Donald Trump. And maybe a, I think it could have been moderated better. Um, it wasn't Wallace's best night, but it's a really hard job. Um, but watching like this country have to face massive, massive challenges and two old dudes just bickering poorly, like bickering with like interruptions in this. It broke my heart because we didn't win, because we weren't able to be there and, and make it more either more of a positive vision and things like that. I thought, did you have any of that sense, Andrew? Maybe it's more of a Yang super fan perspective, but I, I love your thoughts on the emotional weight watching that. Yeah, it was a very disheartening night for all of us uh, on that level where I, I tweeted, I said, I, I think Joe won, but it feels like America lost. It, it feels like America lost uh, something like it, it, it lost some of the last vestiges of respectability and institutional trust. And it's not just here in the U.S. too. millions of people around the world watch that debate. You yeah, I mean? so it was 100, like, like, it was 65 million on TV, just so you know, and then they expected the final numbers aren't out yet because they're still telling like online and digital and shit, but it's probably somewhere around like 70, 80 million. And they, the for context, the Super Bowl gets 100 million. So this is close to the Super Bowl. Yeah, and that's multiple times higher than the DNC debates, for example. So this was enormous. It's going to get viewed tens of millions of additional times digitally, uh, and it was viewed by tens, even hundreds of millions of people internationally. And they all came away with the same sense that many of us came away with was, oh, no, like this is awful. Uh, And it it makes you question uh, our government, our institutions, our election processes. Uh, Yeah, it's uh, I mean, they're talking about how like kids just couldn't watch that, like, you know, run away from the TV or go to sleep crying or like like, there was it was that kind of experience uh oh. you know I, i'm sort of glad that my kids uh could not watch because they just like they, they're uh they just have no interest in that sort of thing like evelyn was watching and uh, the kids just like we're, we're like forget this and it's like what, 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 what often it's something else uh <laughs> you know I, I i was uh in the cnn studio um right. because uh you know i was going to comment there after uh so yeah you're, you're right to feel that way zach i mean we all feel that way yeah um so here's the other thing I, I think, and I think you have a really interesting perspective on this is in 2016, Donald Trump was, in my opinion, um, but I think it's close to fact at some point was the master of messaging and kind of always has been in his own way. But when he was as a politician, he was a master of messaging so much. So like you and I, we combed over the Republican primary debates, like watching this guy because he was exceptional at this like shitty reality TV format of getting himself the attention. Um, and in 2016, I'll never forget the first, the first debate one, they asked everybody like, Hey, will you support They raise your hand if you'll support the nominee. So first question out of the bait and he refused to raise his hand just cause he wanted the microphone. He's like, I'm going to win anyway. It doesn't matter. But then Megan Kelly, first question fires at him. I remember he's like, Hey, you've called women terrible things, misogynistic. You've called them pigs. And he interrupts and goes only Rosie O'Donnell joke defuse the bomb she keeps attacking him and he goes look so i'm paraphrasing but he says essentially this country is too politically correct and we don't have enough time because we're losing we're losing to china we're losing to mexico and if i'm president we will win we will start winning again i'm going to make america great again 
And that to me is someone throws bullshit at you. You punt it away. You slap away the nonsense, deflect the question and go right back to message. And his message was, we need to start winning, make America great again. We're going to build the wall, whatever. And I don't say you have to love the message. I mean, half the country hated it, but half the country loved it because it was very consistent and principled. In that debate, Andrew, he had, in my opinion, no message. He was all over the place. So I'm, I don't thoughts on the way, like way Trump is handling 2020. Like this makes no sense to me. Like he's the messenger, the master messenger, and he's got nothing, nothing. Um, maybe because his old message it, the, is the, done. What do you think? The same thing happened when he was asked about his agenda for the second term. He has no agenda. He has no vision. He has nothing uh, to go to. And and so. You're right, Zach. It's very, very different from 2016, where he would hammer certain points and messages uh, in a very visceral and consistent way. This time it was like, what, Joe's academic record? Like, like just some stuff where it's like, everyone's like, what are you talking about? Uh, you know, like that he, he was all oh, yeah, over the place that. and he doesn't have anything uh, to present to folks. Even the folks that are inclined to support him and are like looking for a reason to vote for him. I think a lot of them are going to be like, "What am I? What am I signing up for again?" Uh, <laughs> like that, that. There's like a there's a significant part of me that thinks that he, um, he's just not enjoying himself anymore because he he thrives on attention, which he's getting, um, but but he thrives on approval, and yeah. he senses that the approval is diminishing quick, and, and it's making him aggrieved. It's making him. Uh, even smaller and pettier. Uh, and so he, he doesn't have it within him to present a vision he doesn't have. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and so right now he's just trying to set the house on fire. And, uh, you know, and, and that's just unappealing. Like, even if you're, uh, again, somewhat inclined or aligned, you're like, this yeah, person, you're a Trump you know, supporter. this person, is, this person isn't even the person I voted for four years ago. You know, it's like, he's at, not, like, at least he doesn't then. look like it. And I will say like Obama had a change from 28. 2008 to 2012 i recall like 2008 was hope and change and 2012 was a little i mean paul ryan said this is fear and blame like as a joke but realistically he was like poor versus rich like mitt Romney's a rich asshole and i'm a man of the people it was very it was it was a different strategy but it was a strategy in this case we're just i think i mean they're trying to do the radical left thing but that doesn't stick on biden because he's not he's a moderate he's i mean fundamentally never has been um i don't know man um do you let me ask, let me ask you this. this is, I think this is um, a really interesting takeaway. So I think you your your analysis of the impact of the election was like, look, and you talked about with this this with David Axelrod, like Biden needs to just hold serve, like not not implode, look competent, and as long as Trump doesn't get any crazy home runs or outlandish um, like things that change the narrative, that's going to be good for him. Still agree with that? Like we're. Um, your takeaway from the impact is, is that still, you still think Biden's got the inside lane to, to pull this thing out? Yeah, I do. You know, up by nine points in uh, Pennsylvania, according to ABC, uh, competitive in Texas. He's competitive in Iowa, Ohio, places that Hillary lost by eight or nine points. Um, this up in the money uh, relative to Trump, which is staggering given that Trump started out with a nine figure head start. Um, so things are very, very positive by the numbers. Really, the question is how quickly and reliably the votes get tallied uh, when people are able to project certain swing states, because it's hard to project a state if you have millions of outstanding mail-in votes. 
you know, unless the margin of victory is so significant. And these media organizations do not want to get it wrong. So you can't be like, well, our statistician says there's like yeah. a pretty <laughs> high chance that he won Michigan. Right. It's like, oh, you're probably going to have to wait for the vote count. So, right. uh, so unless we get some great results from some swing states quickly, like we might be waiting for a while. But if you were to magically be able to vote every, uh, to, to count everyone's votes, I think Joe wins this thing uh, cleanly if the vote were held today and the vote is kind of being held today in some places because yeah. some people can vote early. And the other thing is, Hey, make sure you register to vote, uh, send for your ballot, uh, get a voting plan, go to IWillVote.com uh, cause you should vote. If you're listening to this, just please vote. Make sure you vote. I got mine today. It came in the mail or yesterday. I'm going to do it today. Um, the, it was at the end of it, you get a closing statement and it was telling Joe Biden's closing statement, which I thought was awesome. He said, vote. Doesn't matter who you vote for, just freaking vote. And Trump's uh, literally was essentially, essentially, don't vote. Like mail-in ballots are a disaster. Don't freaking vote. Um, here, so let me let me challenge you on, on one thing. So, and, and, and as a numbers guy, so I um spent an hour yesterday combing over five thirty-eight um polls. I like them because they aggregate a lot of things and then make a prediction. It's very. I don't think Nate Silver and the team are perfect. Nobody is, but I think they do a very good job. They were the closest. They weren't right. They weren't close to right. But they said like 78, 76% chance of Clinton winning last time. And that was the lowest anybody gave her. Um, so I'm looking at the state by state polls. Um, so Trump wins Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, um, Iowa, a number of Midwest states, which Biden is either a toss up or leading in right now. But for exa- what what freaks me out, and I love your thoughts, is in 2016, Nate, like the list of polls, the polling average, saw that Hillary Clinton was winning Pennsylvania somewhere between three and nine points by somewhere in that range. And realistically, five to eight was like the, the median there. And she lost that state pretty handedly. Like she didn't, that wasn't like a Michigan, Wisconsin, where it was like 100,000 votes or, you know, a very small, like she got crushed. And Biden, not correct, but she lost pretty, it was decisively a, a percent or two. Um, Biden, according to these polls, that average is about the same. Like it's saying Biden somewhere a little higher, but not a lot higher. Um, five to nine is what the range is right now I'm seeing. What are your thoughts on like the polls being that wrong again? Uh, to me, it seems like a turnout game. Like what are, you, what are your thoughts on what you're seeing in the numbers versus what we saw in the numbers of 2016. I think that Joe uh, is fundamentally a less unlikable candidate than Hillary was. I think that there, that there was like a skew from that factor uh, that mm-hmm. people talk about the shy Trump voter. Maybe in my opinion, uh, this time it's pretty fully baked. Like there, there were a lot of folks last time who, uh, were thinking like, oh yeah, I'm like, you know, vote for Trump and I'm gonna do this thing. Like, I feel like most of the people who uh, who voted for Trump last time are, you know, like are very openly voting for Trump this time. And there isn't like this massive block of voters who are gonna run in and uh, vote for him this time the same way. Um, I think uh, people just didn't like Hillary very much. You know, like yeah. uh, Joe using Pennsylvania as an example. Joe is from Scranton. He runs his campaign from like you know like yeah. miles away. Uh, I think he wins PA. You know, in a way, like yeah. just just if you look at it from a binary, like is he going to perform better than Hillary in a lot of these places? Yeah, I think he will. Yeah. 
Um, and I think Trump's weaker. And I think a lot yeah. of people who voted for Trump last time as an anti-institutional vote are, are just like, you know what? That did not work did out not the work way out. I, I was kind of hoping for. Uh, so I, I'm very much on the um, this lead is real. Joe is going to win page. Um, and it's not just the numbers. It's the fact that the Joe and Hillary are different candidates. Yeah. Trump 2016 and Trump 2020 are different candidates. Uh, you know, and circumstances are very different. You know, we talk a lot about the people that voted for Trump never want to talk about it. I also think it never gets talked about that there's a healthy amount of people who consider themselves Democrats and progressive and supporter of the feminist movement and other and other things that didn't like Hillary Clinton and didn't want to talk about it. And I would consider myself one of them. I could not stand Hillary Clinton, but I, I support like a badass female like being in leadership in the United States of America. You know what I'm saying? I didn't. So I wasn't like leading with that with friends or publicly or anything of that sort. Um, so I do, I do think there's some sort of larger trend. There's also a pandemic. Nothing makes you yearn for a competent government like a global pandemic is what <laughs> I said. So, you know, I mean, that, that's, that's a very different situation. Yeah. Um, I am hopeful, um, but please vote. Um, please, please, please. All right. I want to quickly touch on um, your thoughts on the new Supreme Court nominee from the Donald. Uh, her name is Amy Coney Barrett. Um, thoughts on her? I have some, but um, I'm way more curious in yours if, um, in terms of how what type of justice she'd be, how this will play out, anything there. I think that the Republicans are going to be to succeed in uh, this hurry up confirmation, which I'm going to suggest is, uh, is yet another reason why Americans are looking up saying, wow, like, uh, you know, our, our, our government uh, really at this point is just nakedly partisan and political uh, and has double standards for everything where it's like the same group that was like, oh, year before election, don't do it. Now it's like, what? We've got five weeks? Like, let's do it. And, and the the ordinary <laughs> length of time of a confirmation process is over two months, you know? So it's like if, if you could you, you could imagine a world where a Republican stands up and says, you know what, guys, we don't really don't have enough time to do this uh, like in the time frame properly, like you know, this is a very serious thing. No, of course not. Like, no, 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 that's a habit. Uh, <laughs> and, and, uh, and then you have the stimulus, you know, it's like we we can get this thing done in like record time, but like, you know, it's like, hey, millions of Americans hurting, it's like, yeah, well, it's just like, uh, it's like wait until the other side comes to us on that one. Um, so, uh, it, it's it, it's clear what, what we're all seeing here. Uh, to me, the silver lining is that I believe we should go on a Supreme Court modernization drive that is long overdue. Uh, 18-year term limits, increase the number of justices from nine, which is not in the Constitution. It's just statutory. Uh, is a law written in 1869. There is nothing stopping the Senate or Congress from saying, you know what? There's nothing magic about nine. You know, it's been higher. It's been lower. Let, let's just, like, let it float uh, and then have some appointments um, that actually map to politics. Just say you get a new appointment every two years, you win an election, you get two justices, uh, and then we know what's happening instead of having it so that Obama appoints one justice in eight years and Trump appoints three in three and a half years because of uh, luck of the expiration date. I mean, like, it, like does that does that strike anyone as, you know, fair or rational? I mean, like, that, that's the kind of thing that gets people very, very angry on both sides. 
Um, so it ought to be bipartisan that you smooth it out, you make it more predictable, uh, more modern, more efficient too, because you know you, if you have a, a higher number of justices, you can actually rotate justices in a particular way and hear cases um, uh, more regularly. Um, so, so there, there are a lot of advantages, and other district courts do that. It's like you know, you you have a number of justices. You don't need them all for for something. I mean, theoretically, like you know, uh, there, there's actually something not optimal about the cult of personality that arises among Supreme Court justices right now. Where if you look up, like, could anyone name the uh, judges on the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, which is a very powerful court? No, <laughs> if you have like really good institutions, you don't need to freaking know like the all the judges' names and their bios and the robes. <laughs> you know what I mean? They should be a cog in a relatively good working machine, right? They shouldn't have the ability to derail things, right? I loved RBG too, but this is not the way. It's not like uh, uh, you know that like oh you've got your heroes and I've got my heroes and like I hate your heroes and like like that that's not great for anybody you know let's just get like a uh, a court that functions the way other institutions do um, and, and also to me like it's it is ridiculous to be planting a flag and being like this justice is going to determine law for decades like like if you were running any organization you'd be like you don't know what I want to do I want to set a rule. That's going to apply to people 25 years from now when I have no idea <laughs> what is yes. going on <laughs> like oh at that God. time. You know, you know what I mean? It's like no one should be taking pride in that. No one should be like, this thing will stand for like 30 Forever. years. Forever. I mean, exactly not, the same. <laughs> yeah. Like, like that, that. I mean, that's not um, – it's just not good governance. Uh, so – so I think she's going to get confirmed, uh, and I hope that we re-examine the way this institution works. Yeah, um, I'm I'm so fascinated by this part. So that Trump came at, um, and the, and Fox News and the Republicans are coming at the Democrats, saying, and he said, and Trump went at Biden on this on the debate stage, said, "You're going to pack the court. You're going to pack the Supreme Court, which means we're going to add more and more." Make, you know, if you win the Senate, if Biden wins and they win the Senate, they would put a whole bunch of justices on there um, that are all Democrats. Yeah, so, right? so my perspective is is not necessarily Joe's perspective. Joe did the right thing where he just said, look, let the people decide. Uh, yeah. You know, and, and, and that that's the right answer. It's the right principle. Um, you know, what I'm suggesting would also let the people decide, by the way, because if you win an election and right now, like, you know, you don't get, quote unquote, lucky and no one expires like like during your term, then the people's vote did not count. You know, and, and that's part right. of it, too, is that um, you want to translate popular will to what happens on the court, then you would have regular appointments and rotations, uh, you know. So, uh, in like, Republicans being like, the people have decided the election. It's like, well, if you really care what the people decide, then you should make it so that it's regular, so that if they decide something in 2020, then, like, you know, the people are heard. Yeah, it's reflected in uh, 2020, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so Joe's answer on the principle is correct. It's like, let the people decide, which means we should have regular appointments and, and some kind of rotation. I, I guess I was, I was saying, I think it's funny or just interesting that him and then Kamala got pressed on this question too. Will you pack the court? She got pressed on at CNN right after the debate. Both of them wouldn't touch that question with a 20 foot pole. And I believe it's because they know, or their consultants know, I mean, I've told them, they know that um, most people care a lot about so no, like the Supreme Court. It's the number one thing they care about. 21% of Americans is the most important issue on a ballot, which is the biggest of any issue. Um, they know that they're going to attract a lot of moderates, independents, and conservatives over their camp, and saying they're going to pack the court would turn them off. And the progressive left, 
the far left and the moderate left are probably going to vote for them anyway. So might as well not touch it. You think that's their calculus? That's what it seems like to me. And I think it makes sense as much as it kind of sucks to hear them like just dodge questions. Yeah, I think that's right. I, th- I think your yeah. your instincts are right. Uh, it could be that they genuinely don't want to change it too. I mean, Joe has that um, a history of having a very high respect for institutions uh, because yeah. he's been part of the Senate for so long. Um, so it, it could be just genuinely they, they don't like the idea. I mean, that that's something uh, that yeah. a lot of people feel too. Um, one of the things when we were running, we used to always, you know, if there's an issue like this, like, Andrew, what do you honestly feel? And then we would decide the political <laughs> ramifications of you being too honest, if you will, right? Um, but most of the time, and you had to, like, if there's stuff like, hey, just don't talk about it if you can. Like, you'd give an, as close to an honest answer as you could and then play, hey, next question, please. I mean, because there's stuff that, like, and I get it, like, it's a soundbite world. If they get you saying something that like doesn't sound good in 10 seconds, it can crush you, you know? Um, when in reality, even if it's the right, right or wrong thing, you're trying you know, fight for the bigger picture. So, um, anyway, always curious about that. Um, okay. We've got, um, a couple housekeeping things before we get to the guest. Um, we did a caption contest. Andrew, did you ever see this photo? Oh my gosh. I have not seen uh, the winner. Right, Who won? So- Who won? All right, I'm going to say this. Um, Yang Gang, you know I love you um, dearly. Andrew loves you dearly. But y'all's captions were um, were pretty bad. They were pretty pretty terrible. Um, like my team, we were having fun looking. They were, oh, not funny. So, like, you're going to read this caption and be like, okay, that's fine. Be like, that one? Like, yeah, that one. And trust me, we read them all. This one. Um, but, um this is kind of a hilarious caption. Um, so the picture is of Andrew eating you. It's of you eating a chicken wing mid conversation with a supporter. And I'm like awkward. I don't know. I'm checking my phone in the background or behind it, which I remember this conversation. And I remember these moments on the campaign, Andrew, because you never let food get in the way of conversations with supporters. You know what I'm saying? Like you would eat talking to very important people all the time, which I loved, which actually I didn't, I didn't love at the time. I didn't think it was the most presidential move, but it was also kind of very honest and, hilarious at times man's gotta eat yeah i continue man's gotta eat um <laughs> and so winning caption was a guy named joe hag at jmf h68 on instagram you've won your caption was andrew yang bites a rubber chicken wing as organizer explains the food was a decoration which i thought was kind of funny and <laughs> it's kind of funny. pretty good compared to the other stuff like the fact that i chuckled on that thank you joe uh was a win because a lot of them are not that great it, there was some it, funny it does ones. look um, like i might be eating a rubber chicken in that photo um i appreciate it joe but the yeah, important thing joe is that you just won an incredible uh an unagi electric scooter that's going to change your life so yeah. let's get him that scooter it will change your Maybe life so joe, we're gonna DM you. makes me happy please don't ignore your dms of the next let's call it week or so um or i'm gonna have to find another another I don't know, someone else to give it to you. Um, and I'll, I'll guess, but so make sure it's you, Joe. We're going to give away one more. I'm not sure how. We won't do another caption contest because I was a little disappointed. I love y'all. Just, it wasn't that funny. And as a very funny person myself, just let me tell you, I know funny. It wasn't funny. Um, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> not funny. I don't know. I don't know how to tell you, um, but we're going to get, we'll do something creative because um, these scooters are awesome. And um, I'm going to beg Yunagi for more, or maybe we'll just buy them ourselves because I love... Maybe people want money. Maybe we should give away money if we're going to spend it. But anyway, I love these scooters. They're freaking awesome. I want you guys to enjoy them. Um, so look, um, we've got um, a pretty awesome guest today. Andrew, I'll let you introduce him because he's actually a friend. You've now become friends um, 
I mean, closer than yeah. He's another sure, person I that I met. Friends. You know, yeah. they met during the campaign um, online, and we have some friends in common. It's Joel McHale from Community, from Talk Soup, from that <laughs> quarantine-defining show, Tiger King, uh, from the Darkest Timeline podcast with Ken Jong, who was our very first guest uh, when when we launched Yang Speaks. So Joel's a fascinating guy because he says had a really interesting career, uh, great perspective, family man. Um, yeah, I enjoyed the conversation a great deal. I hope you do too, Joel McHale. Joel McHale, you know what? I, um, we always like we schedule. We have to email the actors or their producers or agents, and so we're emailing Joel, and every time he was immediately responsive and so freaking excited. I love this guy because sometimes these celebrities can be like either quiet or kind of assholes in the background. Joel is not. He's the real deal. What you see is what you get. Um, so you're going to love the episode. Tune in, Joel McHale. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Why let big tech companies see everything you're doing online when you can just use ExpressVPN and then be footloose and fancy free. Plus, you get access to exclusive content by beaming in to another market. What do I mean? Let's say you have Netflix and you missed the show Snowpiercer. By the way, I loved that movie. And you want to watch the TV series, not available in the US on Netflix, but if you beam into the UK or someplace else, then there's Snowpiercer on your Netflix. See how it works? This is a way you can get more from what you're already spending on streamers, plus totally anonymous online, plus you can do it by pushing one button anywhere you are. It's why I love ExpressVPN. It's like a set it and forget it. So be smart. Stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content. Get your money's worth at expressvpn.com yang. Don't forget to use my link at expressvpn.com yang to get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. I am thrilled to welcome to Yang Speaks, actor, producer, host, com comedian, the other half of the darkest timeline, and one of the the most influential figures of the quarantine because he hosted that Tiger King special on, on Netflix, Joel McHale. Welcome, Joel. It's great to connect. Wow. I thank you for having me, and I'm guaranteeing I will be the least intelligent person you've ever had on your show. Uh, you know, it, it's a it's a high or low bar, depending upon how you look at it. But I'm sure you're wrong because we've had at least one person on here who will go who will who will go nameless. Dr. Ken Jong. Yes. <laughs> here he is. There he is. Right there. I keep one of his finest movie posters in my house. That's Ken. Uh, for the uh, All About Steve um, movie that won numerous Razzies. And so, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I, I wish I had been in it, but, you know, Ken's, Ken's movie career. <laughs> Do you often have movie posters with your, just your friends in them? So, uh, yeah. so yeah, Ken, Ken was the, the first guest on the, the pod. Uh, he and I connected during the campaign. Um, and you guys have been co-hosting this podcast very happily and successfully. Uh, appreciate you coming on. I was looking into some of your, your, 
background in work. And I got to say, Joel, I feel like uh, like you might be one of the bigger jocks in Hollywood, at least the ones that, that I, I encounter, or in comedy, because I feel like most of the comedians I know are not what you'd call fit. Whereas you were, were actually, and this blew my mind, you were like a walk-on on a freaking D1 college football team. Uh, and like that to me is bananas. That's like some freaking stuff out of uh, like Rudy and uh, Notre Dame or like the movies or, or whatnot. Yeah, well, I wasn't good. Uh, I was more of a mascot. And uh, I the guys, I don't know why I did it. I So I only played one year of high school football. I loved it. Uh, but then I was, after that, I was like, I want to be an actor. And I ran to the theater. And also I loved playing basketball and baseball and tennis i love i'm just if i'm like a golden retriever that if you throw a ball at me i'm gonna run after it and pick it up and throw it at something that's just my nature and i was recruited to row like uh like crew which is it which is itself nuts so anyone who went to a college where where there was a crew team there were all of these tall, ripped dudes who always hung out together. It's like like you couldn't separate them. They always moved in like groups of four or five. Um, the crew guys, and and uh, I feel like you're also anomalously tall um, for like a, a media type. You're what six three? I'm six four. Six four. So we got recruited for rowing, and then you wound up doing something easy like football. <laughs> I got into, I left rowing because I got into a scuttle or kind of a half fist fight, me and this other freshman with the senior rowing team of 12 people, which is not a smart fight you ever want to get into because the odds, the odds are not in the favor of the two people, unless you're Iron Man. And, um, they had all these crazy rituals because nobody watches crew races anymore except for the Olympics. So if you made the freshman boat, they would shave your head and shave your eyebrows and then put that hair into a pillow, which then went into a display case of hair pillows through the ages of the University of Washington. And uh, so I, the, it didn't like, and the coach did not come like the, we had been slapped around and the coach of the crew was just like, Hey, well, yeah, that's how it goes. And I'm like, I'm out of here. And I knew all these football players and they were like, you should come out and play football. And that was the beginning of a two year, uh, terrifying and wonderful and fun. And I look back on it with such uh, fondness because I re that is where I learned how to work hard uh, for the first time in my life. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, D1 athletes, they do work hard. Like they have you practicing at the crack of dawn and the rest of it. Uh, it. It takes over a lot of your college career. And so the fact that you pivoted from rowing and football to theater and acting and comedy blew my mind. It's like that, that seems like a pretty dramatic shift. The most respect I got from the players was on skit night. And because uh, I nailed the skits. And they, after that, like the players who would not pay attention to me would walk up and like we would do, like we would act out the sketch again. And I was just like, oh, I should probably take a cue from this. That this is how I uh, this is how I'm successful here on this team is by 
acting stuff out. But the two guys ahead of me were, I, I am an okay athlete. These guys were real athletes and they were, they all went, they went to the NFL and w- were, did well. I would have been uh, broken in half, uh, but like a paper airplane uh, caught in a, like a live wire. So it was just caught flint. So I, I like people like, you must be really good. I'm like, I was fine and I survived. But it was those guys were truly like you could see you could just see, you know, when you see those guys move, it's just it's otherworldly. Well, just the fact you hung with them, man, it's super impressive. Uh, And when someone gets to your level, I think a lot of people wonder what your start looked like in comedy, uh, in show business, uh, what like the origin story looked like, because I can imagine that being that's a really tough time for just about anyone. Uh, starting out like what what was that arc like for you and were was your family down with it the whole time were they like oh yeah Joel was always going to end, <laughs> end up no uh, I think uh most of your friends look at you like you're a little nuts uh and they also I think they think it's a hobby and especially when you're younger but then the more serious one starts getting they get a little more like are you out of your mind uh, I started literally in Haddonfield, New Jersey. I did a play, the play version of the Disney ride. It's a small world. And I always just thought it was so fun. And my parents even said, yeah, when you got on stage, you seemed perfectly comfortable. And, and I was like, yeah, I love it. And so I just was in like little plays. And then by seventh grade, I was like, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. That's what I decided. Wow. And wow. Uh, so it was because I was such a bad student. Uh, I'm dyslexic and ADHD and I'm sure a thousand other things that have something to do with processing. And so I was terrible in school. I couldn't spell for shit. I can't even spell shit. S-H-O-T. See? And uh, I just love that was my that was my escape. And I joined this theater group where we we did plays together we put them on together and we were improvisers uh and i eventually joined this improvising theater in seattle called unexpected productions where i was on stage every single day practically i think it was like two one to two days a week maybe where we weren't performing and that was that's where i learned kind of the just that's where i trained basically and so there was so much stage time and I knew that I needed to eventually get to Los Angeles. But like my my wife, God bless her for, you know, being interested in me. I was I had no job. And her family was like, he just uses her because she has a car. Oh, no. Yeah, he just she has a car and he she drives him around. And uh, they and then I got a job on local television in Seattle, which was this very strange, amazing show called Almost Live. It was a full-on produced uh, sketch comedy show that was on the NBC affiliate. There's nothing. It was a local show. And uh, so it was very popular. I somehow got on that. And I... I went from that is a dead that is the deadbeat that's my wife Sarah who's like that's the deadbeat that Sarah's marrying to well look at you you're on TV it was like 
that. It was great uh, <laughs> or horrible. And um, that that was so that again was a great training ground because I can't read a teleprompter. I'm much better at it now. But they had these teleprompters. I would just be like, I don't know what that is. And I was in a sheer panic when these shows were live and I can't read. And so I, I was able to screw up a lot on this show. And so I'll ever be thankful to this guy named John Keister and Bill Staten who hired me. And um, boy, I'm really And Then I left the show because I went to graduate school for acting because I was like, I need to become a better actor before I go to Los Angeles. And um and so I got really, again, I got into this graduate school because I had literally gotten to no other graduate schools. I applied to every one of them. I got into one. And so uh, I, I spent three years just acting and acting and acting. And I was, again, at a great training ground. And then finally, at the age of 29, I moved to L.A. And again, all my friends thought I was crazy. <laughs> so that's my, that's a long, way, boring explanation of how it all kind of, started uh, or how I when I am you know when I landed here in Los Angeles and I was very surprised it was like January 15th and it was 70 degrees and sunny and I was like what's happening so there there's that's that's how that's how I ended up in LA so Sarah so Sarah and you were dating it sounds like uh shortly after you graduated and then uh, her parents are down on you, and then her parents are like, "Oh, he's actually pretty good on TV." Uh, and so, were you married by the time you arrived in LA? Oh yeah, I met my wife in November of '93 when you were a sixth grader, and um, we married. I was eighteen. <laughs> there you go. We married, I'm, and I yeah, there you go. So I was I was like twenty one, and I married her when I was I married in '96. Uh, and we didn't, we didn't mess around. So we were married four years before we even moved here. And so we just celebrated 24 years. Yeah. Uh, cause we were married in 96, which 20, yeah. 24 years, 24 years. Is that right? So, um, and, and I, yeah, I, I don't know what I would have done without her. She's, you know, the greatest thing I've ever, that's ever come into my life. Sorry, kids. Uh, and so, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I did say before I married, I was like, you have to live in LA or Los Angeles. I mean, Los Angeles or New York at some point. Uh, we have to try, have to try. And I gave myself a five year, I said just five years. And if that doesn't, if it does, if something's not happening for real in five years, then we'll go back to Seattle and I'll, I'll get a job in local radio doing weather and traffic probably. So that's, that's, that was the plan. And my, I dragged my poor wife down here and, and, and now we're, we've been here for 20 years. It's very weird. And we, 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 it's like, we, we know, you know, it takes a long time to put roots down anywhere. And then all of a sudden you have them. It's very strange and wonderful. I love hearing about how people became who they are, particularly in creative fields, Joel, because it's such a brutal pro process. It's soul crushing. And the fact that someone comes through it and maintains like a degree of um, like perspective or integrity and the rest of it. I mean, it, it like it, it, it's wild. It can turn you into something else. You start to mistrust people, too, in, in your own way. So in your case, it's really interesting because you had uh, like a 
you know, by the time you showed up in LA, you were married, which strikes me as somewhat unusual. Like, uh, like most of the people I know who moved to LA for the industry were like totally single. <laughs> they showed up. <laughs> they showed up, and it's like half the reason they were there. It seemed like. Uh, yeah. And, uh, no, I, I, I remember Howard Stern. He interviewed me right before I did the White Horse uh, White House Correspondents Dinner. Thanks for mentioning that, Joel. Um, and he was like, do you feel like, you, you know, you got, you became famous. You, you feel like you missed out on, you know, just playing the field. And I was like, I am so happy that I had someone to go home to and to like bounce things off of. It was like a refuge. So I know that sounds so, I, there's so many people that are either going like, that's so sweet or that's BS, but it really was like. I don't know what I, I probably would have just died if I didn't have her. So uh, I, so it was, so yeah, she was incredibly and continues to be as we raise our children, incredibly important. I literally have those weird fantasy dreams where I'm like, well, if one of us for some reason in some weird world had to die, I'd be like, Oh, I would have to go because she uh, she holds the entire aircraft carrier of our lives up and keeps it going. So, oh, don't worry. My wife and I have the same conversation that uh, among the four of us, like I'm the most expendable <laughs> where you have you have heard the two boys. It's like, well, clearly the boys aren't going anywhere. And so between me and Evelyn, like I, I'd be the first. I to think go. if you ask the kids, they would say the same thing. They'd be like, oh, yeah, no, we, no, go ahead. Yeah, leave now. Go ahead. And so. <laughs> So you referenced before that you were, you were dyslexic, um, which it sounds like you discovered a little bit later in, in life um, because uh, of being a parent. And when you're a parent, you learn a lot about yourself. One of my boys is uh, autistic, uh, and I've learned a lot from that. So one thing you probably heard at some point over the last number of years, but a highly, highly disproportionate number of entrepreneurs are dyslexic. Uh, where 35% of business owners are dyslexic, some ridiculously high percentage. Uh, they did a random survey of millionaires, um, and it was a similarly high percentage. It's like 40% of them were dyslexic. And, and I worked for a CEO who was dyslexic, uh, and he was so brilliant in all these other ways. And when I talked to him a little bit about his background, what he said was like as a kid, uh, let's say reading's not your strength. Uh, and so you adapt. And in his case, he ended up just paying a lot more attention to other people. You end up getting resources for getting your schoolwork done from other people, from, uh, you know, like just you you find ways around the problem or like, that like oh, lead yeah. you to, to become someone who then in, let's say a business context, like you see a problem and then you're like, all right, let me just find a way around that. It's like, I can't just sit there and do the homework. Well, you know, I'll figure some other way to, to make this happen. That, uh, and so, that's exactly what I would do. And I always thought the system of school is something that I can figure out. So when I began freshman year of high school, I literally had a one four grade average. And my mom was like, are you even going to class? And I was like, through cheating and through all sorts of little different ways, by the end of high school, I was getting a 4.0. <laughs> and I, I was averaging, I think my grade point average out of high school was like 3.4. So I was like, all right, figured it out. And that's what I kind of like with the entertainment business, same thing where I'm like, how do I get into this crazy business that's really difficult to get into? And so, yeah, I 
do it. I did. Yeah, I definitely did what they said. I would have rather have made, you know, started a company where I made hundreds of millions of dollars and I could build spaceships and go to Mars or something. But no, I'm, I'm kidding. But no, you're you're right. And I also have a son who is autistic, and uh, and so teaching him is really interesting. And uh, and he, but he's game for it, which is great. Well, good for you both. I mean, I, I find trying to teach uh, my the my uh, autistic son. Um, it's really difficult because I mean, I, I can't tell you how grateful I am to teachers or uh, service providers who spend time with him because I, I feel like uh, you just have to be so generous of spirit when like a kid is not uh, not a natural learner or not really a, much of a listener, which is the case with my kid, where you know you could just be saying something and then his attention will wander off. And even as his parent, like it gets frustrating. You're like, come on, <laughs> you know, like I'm here trying to like convey this thing to you, and uh, you know, then you'll, your mind will just completely drift to something totally unrelated, or I'll be saying something, and then he'll uh, he'll respond to me in a way that says like, I, Dad, I was not listening to anything you were saying for the last several minutes. <laughs> you know, and you're just like, what am I doing? And then when you see parents do the same thing, like they take it like chips. They take it better than I do a lot of the time. And do you ever go like, I ran for president and a bunch of people listened to me. That's, I always, always yeah, I always, bring, I always bring up jokingly. I'll be like, Hey, you know, I did, you know, host the ESPYs. So maybe you could spend the next two minutes looking at this, uh, you know, this physics question. I never bust out the presidential card because I have to say my kids really had no clue what the heck dad was doing. Uh, and still, I still don't think they really understand what the heck was going on because um, better do one of them is in a few years. That would be great. Then, they, then they'd be old enough to get it. But what, what one of them was very young, and the other one's just extra clueless. And so, <laughs> so like, like you'd think that like uh, kids would be like, "Hey, Dad's running for president." the The major upside for my kids was the bus. Like, I think it, the only thing that they'll remember is that there was a giant bus with Daddy's face on it, and we we carted them around Iowa on it, and it had uh, big TV screens and video games inside, and we got like a. Like one of those old Nintendo play, um, you know, like sixty fours, so that they could screw around on the bus wow. uh, and be be entertained. So that that was like the high point, I think, uh, for them. If you ask, you know, other than that, they still have no idea what I do for a living. Even now, they just like daddy disappears into his room for a while. <laughs> they always like they tease me. They'll watch an episode of Community and then go, "Hey, that was a really good episode," except for your acting. And I'll be like, oh, thanks a lot. And so, uh, yeah, they, they're always constant. They're like, Dad, hey, it's so great that you were you did that community or the soup. But when do you think you'll be relevant again? Do you think you'll ever be relevant again? Like, <laughs> That's <What> so the- <laughs> neat. <laughs> like, thanks. I was like, at least I, I realized I've taught them well. I've taught them sarcasm. Hopefully it's sarcasm. Uh, but yeah, no, they, I, in this age of Zoom, I don't. I, it makes me, it, I'm driven to insanity. It, I hate it. Uh, I, I can't help but think for you. So my, my family is a family of academics. Like my dad um, was, a, an, a, well, he still is a physicist and was a physics professor after he was in industry for a long time. My brother's a professor and my uncle's a professor. 
Um, so I was always kind of the black sheep of the family insofar as like, you know, I mean, like, uh, <laughs> like I no PhD or whatever. It's like, let's ignore that one. Uh, but I feel like for your for your boys, you know, growing up, uh, let, let's say I'm just going to hypothesize. Let's say your kids are not like, you know, really into school. They're or, just as uninterested in school as I was. So let's say that's the case. And then their dad uh, is a major entertainment figure. And then they look up and are like, okay, well, the school thing's not really for me. Um, so I, I feel like they would probably naturally gravitate towards uh, creative fields, uh, especially, I mean, they're in LA and the, the rest of it. This is just a guess. <laughs> this is just me, 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 me guessing. And, and then just thinking if you're like a creative parent, because I feel like the arc you were on is what the arc most of us are on. It's just like, hey, shut up, do well in school, blah, blah, blah. And then you have to like kind of spread your wings to do something creative. Um, and, but in in your kid's case, a little different because you actually made it as a creative and, you know, you're like a, a, a big deal on, um, on TV and everything else. For them, they'd be like, well, it's a much more realistic aspiration for me just to try and do what dad did than it would be to like, you know, go become a you know, lawyer or a uh, scientist or something. Yeah, Just no, guessing. I, I would, I would, it's funny. They're not, uh, enamored with it. Uh, I think because they're around me and because many of our, when you're, you know, when you work in a business, if you, if you're a doctor, you know, a bunch of doctors, if you're a plumber, you know, a bunch of plumbers. And if you're an actor, you know, a bunch of actors. And so they come around, the house, but they don't, uh, so they're not enamored by what I do. They're more kind of like, I don't know, it's like mm, slightly annoyed. So I'll be interested to see if like, I've heard like Eddie get, like my older son get asked and they're like, are you interested in entertainment? He's like, maybe. I mean, that's the sort of like, eh, I don't know. And I don't, it's, it's not some sort of like laissez-faire. It's more just kind of like, oh, this thing that's kind of always around. May I don't know. Yeah, it seems like a thing you do. And so um, I, I, I don't know. I don't know whether they're interested or not. It's it's interesting to think that so far they have not leapt at um, I think they would much rather have successful YouTube channels. Well, which strikes me as the same thing. <laughs> I don't know. It's like I mean, heck, my you know, my my kids. Actually, I will tell tell this story. Uh, they did not give a shit at all about my presidential run, you know, maybe by design, maybe not. But one of them stumbled onto a YouTube video talking about universal basic income that mentioned me. And then he actually came to me and was like, dad, dad, you were in a YouTube video I just saw. Like it was like the biggest deal in the world. Like I'd made, like I'd made it. Uh, so the fact that your kids are thinking YouTube, it's like that, that is their high water mark. It's like, forget about E or ABC or any of that jazz. It's like, if you can make it on YouTube, I got, I became friends with a couple, with one of the people that created Fortnite. And so we went to this Fortnite tournament and all the people that my kids see on YouTube were there. And that, that was like, I think they actually looked me in the eye and were like, thank you, dad. <laughs> it was great they were that was the one time i was like i did it i got I, I was cool for two minutes amazing yeah completely i that youtube is so you heard it here first folks if you're a youtuber uh that's what all the kids want to be so you've made it the rest of us are just trying to make it 
Yeah. Just think if you had started when YouTube started, if you started with earnestness trying to gain followers and putting out videos every week, you know, when it got started 20 years ago, you'd be, you know, you'd be Michael Jackson by then. So uh, I know that uh, you've been paying some attention to current events. Uh, like what? what is, yeah, you know, I, I mean, we, we were just this past week talking about the passing of RBG, which is a very sad uh, tragedy for, for the, for the country. Uh, for 2020, you, you mean know, the worst I'm, year I'm, ever? <laughs> when people ask how we're doing, um, we say 2020 good, which is like good for this shitty year. <laughs> or like, you know, it's like if someone asks me how I'm doing, as long as my family's happy and healthy, you say, well, I'm fine, but things are very gloomy. Uh, I know in LA, you all just had uh, the fires that ended up polluting your air and worse for, for a number of days. I had friends who said that the sky was literally pumpkin colored. Yeah, uh, it was crazy. And then three nights ago, uh, a 4.5 earthquake hit about 35 miles from here. And it's 1138 at night. We just got the boys down. And then it feels like an invisible freight train goes through the house and you can see everything move. And I was just like, yep, perfect. Of course, an earthquake. Yep. Everything's on fire. Now here comes an earthquake. And uh, so it is, yeah, it's 2020. I can't wait. 2021 better be better, but yeah, lose I mean, with RBG, uh, passing, that was a real loss. And I re I can't, I mean, I, you're a good person to ask because they're like, they're going to bring the vote up, but then Republican Senator, two of them say they're not going to do it. I don't know. I am not educated enough on the system for right now, before just 50 days before an election, whether that could actually, it could it actually happen? Could they actually approve someone? They also do have until the new president is sworn in technically. So there's something called the lame duck session, which is between November 3rd of this year and let's call it January 20th of next year. So it's another, uh, you know, a couple months and change. Um, so the the rules are that they need a majority vote to confirm a new justice. Uh, right now they have 53 Republican senators. And like you said, two said they don't want to do it. So now you, you, you have, if you have one more person, let's call him Mitt Romney, who decides not to, then you'd be at 50-50. But technically the vice president can give a tie-breaking vote in the Senate. So you need two more Republican senators to join the, this is not a good idea given this late stage uh, caucus, if you will. Uh, and we're all waiting to see whether there are two more senators that that head in that direction. Uh, there's nothing technically stopping them from trying to do this before the, the end of the year. For me, it's crazy that we're dealing with uh, the repercussions that are so predictable of uh, like of just this antiquated way of administering the Supreme Court, like the the fact that and I used to say this on the trail, Joel. I was like, like, does it make sense that we are all literally just waiting on tenter hooks based upon the health of an eighty-seven-year-old woman, uh, and you know, and then she passes, which I hate to say, it was like somewhat predictable given that you know she's been struggling with cancer for yeah, years and years. Over. 
Yeah, that that we needed to have in my mind like a much more modern approach to the Supreme Court for a long time. Uh, and I I, re- I proposed 18 year term limits when I was running, which would improve things dramatically because then you know you get an appointment, the person's there for 18 years, which is a plenty long time in just about any context. Um, but they're not going to be there until the day they die. You don't have uh, this political firestorm coming up out of nowhere when someone expires. Uh, the the other big thing is you shouldn't have only nine justices, uh, you know, which is another reason why it's such a, a firestorm whenever someone passes because each vote is so pivotal. Uh, someone recommended 27, uh, which struck me as perfectly fine. And you, well, you just appoint a new one every two years until you get up to that level. And then you have enough of a critical mass. You also don't have, need all 27 to hear a case. That's the other thing is that in district courts, some subset of the judges will hear it. And then if it's a major ruling that overturns a precedent, then they can bring everyone in. Um, so that it, it's it's just painful to see our country struggling with something based upon a law that was passed in 1869. And there, there was an 1869 law that said nine justices. But all you need them is a, is a majority vote to say, you know what, it's not going to be nine anymore. Like And, and then uh, you can change it because there's nothing in the Constitution about nine. So uh, I'm all excited about the fact that we need to try and modernize our government. That's one of my new jams, Joel. Modernize the government. Yes. And the Supreme and the Supreme Court has the most archaic approach you can think of. It's like it, it really is like something out of a uh Game of Thrones or some science fiction novel. It's like we have these nine unelected folks that we appoint and they're there until the day they die and you're like checking their blood pressure and whatnot to see like, oh, are you gonna be here for for the 30 or 40 years yeah. so that like so nothing could change during that time. The whole thing uh, is just mind-blowingly out of date. I agree. You know, and you've framed that perfectly because it is, you forget that when, like when Scalia died, it was just like this huge surprise. And, and then there's this huge, you know, like, as you said, it's like this gigantic, reaction because they're appointed for life and yeah if it was 18 years which is a good run at any job that would you would know and it would be way easier i mean there's so many things it's so strange to think i learned it mostly from hamilton but uh i read the book too but uh you're like oh they just put these things tons of it works really well but there is room for improvement to say the least my lord that that that's the unofficial motto of america now unfortunately when it comes to government joel it's like america don't change anything you know it's like, like america fixed in stone we had this rule and it was delivered to us on a tablet uh, no it wasn't i mean these guys brilliant brilliant uh people put together a system but the system needs to uh, adapt and evolve uh, and DC is not really built for evolution that way. That to me is something that should be nonpartisan or bipartisan. It's like, look, let's just modernize. And you can imagine a more modern approach to the Supreme Court terms and uh, and appointments. Uh, you can imagine a more modern approach to legislation and uh, voting. Trying to, voting. Yeah, voting for sure. I mean, the the, the fact that we're we're dealing with some of like the fears we're dealing with around voting. Uh, and I'm not someone like I understand the technology and understand that. Look, if you just had um, all of our voting done via smartphone first, there's a there's a major party that actually likes to have people not vote, which, you know, that so that that's one set of issues. 
Um, but it, it is true that some of the technology um, would not be ready for prime time. Uh, but you have to start moving in that direction. And there could be a period when you have uh, you have more advanced voting via smartphone and then you have some paper redundancy for a while or whatnot, you know, and you can like use things as backup. Uh, like that, there are different approaches you could take that it's not just all... Uh, in one direction and Americans would love that stuff if if we were like if we were like look you're gonna vote the old-fashioned way it's cool but we're gonna do this pilot program of of digital voting too and we're just gonna like start stress testing it and see how it works and see how you like it and whatnot like that that would be awesome I know like that that would be an intelligent approach instead uh, a lot of it is political where a lot of folks like things the way they are for um, really just for keeping things the same. Right now, the congressional approval rating uh, around the country is 21%, which is very low. And it's about, um, even with what it's been this last number of years, it's even been lower at times, it's been like 17. The re-election rate for members of Congress is 94%. So think about that for a second. You're like, wait a minute, none of us are happy with what's going on, but like everyone wins. <laughs> like, let's come back and be like, well, if I wanna keep my seat, I win. And there are a bunch of structural reasons for that. I mean, uh, part of it's gerrymandering and the way the districts are set up. Part of it, though, is just this massive fundraising advantage where uh, the average successful House candidate raised $1.6 million. For a Senate, it's $10.4 million. And so uh, can you imagine a, a normal person trying to raise $1.6 million for a congressional campaign? It'd be impossible. It's like, you know, like, uh, like I mean, I was, frankly, something of an unknown um, but I remember raising that first uh, set of money and it was brutal. <laughs> like no one wanted to give my campaign money either. It was like, hey, you and I have been old friends for a long time. I'm running for president. You want to donate 2700 uh, my campaign? And that that stuff was really, really difficult. So for, for anyone who is trying to do the right thing and, uh, you know, run for Congress for their district, like unless you have been cultivating tons of relationships with people that have money over a period of time, like you're not going to be able to raise enough to be competitive. And frankly, if you were the sort of person that was cultivating those relationships for a long time, you probably were not the person we're hoping runs. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like those two things are kind of mutually. Yeah. They have no choice but to cultivate those relationships because they're not going to raise the money if they don't. And it's so, you know, like camp the campaigning is endless. It starts so I mean, it's, it makes, you know, like buying, it's like buying Christmas gifts in July. And I like the uh, European mail, I guess it's British, where they're like, okay, you can start campaigning on this day. And then, yes. for it, and then it stops. And, and, but the system is so ingrained and it helped, you know, it's helped a lot of people. And so they're not going to stop it. The never ending campaign, man. I just saw this stat that said, um, like Barack Obama in his last year in office when he, he like uh, or one of the years he was running for re-election, it might have been 2012, attended over 200 fundraisers that year. And and you're just like, how are you trying to run the country right? Uh, and show up to 200 fundraisers? Does anyone think that's like an optimal use of his or freaking Trump has never stopped campaigning? And then you think about the Senate and then you think about Congress and obviously the state Congress, all of that. And they're all doing it. And I just like, I don't know, what if you would you want your doctor uh, if your doctor had to raise their salary? You know, like, like no, 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 I want them to focus on medicine. 
and making sure that I stay healthy and they're up to date with the latest information and not out doing this work to, you know, just maintain them themselves. And it just is. And I think we so much of it we take for granted and we just be like, well, that's how it is. People start these debates a year before that anybody, I mean, it's just like, you gotta be kidding me. It goes on and on. And then I stop listening. <laughs> then I'm just like, okay. I'll, I, I, all of a sudden it becomes like major league baseball where there's 169 or 165 regular season games. I'm like, I'll start paying attention. I don't know, 90 games in 110 games up playoffs. Definitely. That's fun. But I was just like, it's endless. So, yes. It is endless. There was a study that said the average member of Congress spends between 30 and 70% of their time fundraising. Uh, Because if you're a member of Congress, let's say I I won this election in November 2020 and I show up. I'm up for re-election again in two years, uh, you know, and so... Like you pretty much start spending raising money immediately to try and uh, build your own moat to defend your seat. Uh, and then even if, let's say, hypothetically, you were confident you were going to win and you'd raised enough money, the party wants you to raise more money anyway to give to other races and to give to the party. And that's how they end up doling out some of the committee seats and the rest of it. So there's really no limit. Like they, Like no one can have raised enough. Because if you raise enough for your seat, you're supposed to raise for the party, for other uh, folks. And and then you end up having this favor trading system. It's one reason why Nancy Pelosi is the Speaker of the House. Because she's from San Francisco, which is a very affluent area. And uh, she was chief fundraiser. She was like the lead fundraiser for a long time. Uh, and so then she just rose through the ranks because she'd done everyone so many favors because she had just money coming out of her ears from <laughs> the district. And, and so then if you're like an incoming member of Congress, you're like looking up at this freaking giant totem pole uh, of money. And you're like, how am I going to climb the money totem pole? Uh, and then you end up spending all your time fundraising. And then we wonder why nothing's getting done. I mean, right now, the fact that there's no stimulus bill passed is an embarrassment uh, and like and, an, and another tragedy. A- and it got so bad, Joel, that uh, like 40 members of Congress uh, just came up and said like, hey, look, here's a compromise bill. 40 of us are for it. Like it's somewhere between these two extremes. Uh, and, and even that, I mean, you know, things are bad when 40 members of Congress were like, look, enough is enough. Let's just freaking like, like present a compromise bill that we think, uh, will, uh, get support. And, and then that, that also has gone nowhere. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm getting increasingly fed up with. Yeah. That's when I want to drag like, all right, if someone get in my car, I'll drag you into my car. Let's just take a drive around. Uh, like a decent part of the city and you will see how many businesses are just gone. And uh, like, you, you don't, I, I, I keep thinking, I mean, this is, I know it gets said over and over, but I was like, if you give us, if you get the money, this is what this, every conservative economist and liberal economist, they all agree there needs to be stimulus because the hotels and bars and movie theaters are all going to go. And everyone just thinks, well, it's not or something because and, and then the recovery will be that much harder and we keep we'll just keep fucking ourselves. Thank you. I'm Joel McHale. You know, you know, Joel, it's making me think I, I'm curious how many members of Congress are dyslexic. Uh, because I feel like if you had more dyslexic members of Congress, they'd be like, oh, how do we get something done? <laughs> let's, go, let's go do this. I, I feel like there's like a need for that, where right now there's this strange groupthink where things that don't make sense are 
presented as if they do make sense. And then if, if you had someone who was an independent <laughs> thinker, they'd come in and be like, this really does not make any sense. That They should just lock them in there. They're like, here's some food and water. Don't show up in a suit and tie. You, each can, you can all wear sweatsuits. And you've got to work it out, no matter what. And if... I don't know. And then if I don't, I don't know what the, then we start, I don't then we start cutting off a pinky or something, but, uh, but it was like, you gotta, you can't, this is ridiculous. It's yeah. I, I, now I sound like every single person on television, but that stimulus is so important because when we come out on the other side of this thing, which is probably not going to be for a while, this is going to, it's just decimated. My friend, he owns this great burger place, Castle's Burgers downtown. And I'm like, how are you guys doing? They're like, oh, we're doing pretty good, actually, except the hotel we're in is about to close, which means we close. And I'm like, Ugh. and there's no reason for it. We got yeah, we have such a rich country. We could afford to float the country. And then that will be that much. Oh, my gosh. Man, so crazy. I, again, you're right. It's common sense. Uh, something like 80 percent of Americans want cash relief during the pandemic. Uh, and the, the thing that has hit me, Joel, is that I used to think that if you had enough people on board with something, then that would get the job done. But now I'm realizing that our government is increasingly detached from what it is that we all want. Uh, and I, I've been digging into some of the structural reasons why that is. So part of it is this 21% uh, satisfaction rate, 94% re-election rate. And you're like, well, that, that's a pretty big divide. Like if, if I was... Uh, let's say running a company, I'd be like, hmm, this might not be introducing the feedback <laughs> that I'm looking for. Uh, uh, but it, it, because our government, like you said, people just have just thought, okay, this is the way it is. So it shall, so it was, so it ever shall be. Uh, and so now, now for me, it really is about the systems. It's like, okay, how, how do our elected representatives get elected? How do they keep getting reelected? What are their incentives? How does the leadership work? This is the this is a gridlock that's happened over and over on a thousand different things. Uh, and I mean, obviously going back a few administrations and where they just were like, we're just not going to do anything. We're just not going to help you at all. How what's the salute? How would you change that system so that would stop? All right. Here are a few big things that we need to do. Number one is public campaign financing so that if you run and you get a certain number of signatures, you get some public money enough to be competitive. Uh, my proposal during the campaign was a hundred democracy dollars for every voter you can give to any candidate you want. And so then if I got 10,000 people behind me, I get a million bucks and that's enough for me to, to compete and run, wash out some of the corporate money. Uh, because right now just the companies are bombing hundreds of millions of dollars into various campaigns. So that's, so that's big domino. Number one, number two is, uh, open primaries in, in place of these party primaries and trying to make the districts more competitive. So right now, over 80% of the congressional districts are either clean Republican or clean Democrat. In other words, there's no, there's no uncertainty as to who's going to win the general election. And so if you're a member of Congress in one of these safe seats, then you don't care about compromising with the other side. You just care about not getting primaried by someone in your own party, typically someone much more extreme. And so that ends up distorting your legislative incentives because it's like, well, I'd rather just seem like I'm like very, very strong on this side. And if nothing gets done, like I'm safe 
But if I were to reach across the aisle and compromise and do something that some people are unhappy with, that's actually very bad for me in terms of my re-election prospects. That, that's the current set of incentives that they have. Um, so if you had open primaries instead of the closed primary system, then you'd have to reach out to more people in your district and not just satisfy um, the, the folks in your party. The big change in, in this direction that would be huge is ranked choice voting, because then if you have a number of people uh, in the district and it's open and ranked choice voting then uh, makes it so that no one's worried about wasting their vote for number one, because right now it's like, oh, you can't vote for that person. You're going to end up costing us this election. If you have ranked choice voting, you can vote for whoever the heck you want and then trust that uh, your your vote's going to end up um, counted in the best way possible. Uh, and it also diminishes the incentives to campaign negatively, because if you were, if let's say there are five of you in the field and I trash candidate number two, then that person looks bad, I look bad, and then candidate number three is going to come up and beat us both. <laughs> so in right choice voting elections, everyone plays it more above board uh, because when you start throwing rocks at people, like, you know, you look bad and the person you're throwing rocks at looks bad. So so these would be the, the biggest changes you could make. But the, the change that I think has been rattling around for a long time that I am totally for that would change this um, maybe the most dramatically is just term limits for members of Congress. Uh, where if you have a, a term, it's a little bit like term 18-year uh, terms for Supreme Court justices, um, but we're making almost the equivalent of lifetime appointments in Congress right now, where you have dozens of members of Congress who've been there for 30 or 40 years, uh, you know, like, and, and you can see it too in the age of our leadership, where not to knock, you know, because there, there are a lot of like awesome um, people of any generation, any stage, um, but we have the equivalent of a gerontocracy right now, which is one right. reason why things feel the way that they do. I mean, the average age of a U.S. senator, I believe, is 62. If you look at leadership, uh, Nancy Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, Mitch McConnell are all in their 70s or even 80s, I believe, in one case. Uh, so we, we have a system that is rewarding seniority to the nth degree in Congress, and nothing ever changes. Um, so I would have term limits for members of Congress. Uh, the, and what's wild, Joel, is when I looked into this, it turns out the vast majority of Americans intuitively agree with with term limits. Uh, like it has something like a 78 or 80% approval rating. So think about that for a second. Like what can you get 80% of Americans to agree on? Like not a whole lot, but you can get them to agree chocolate on the fact that- good. That's something they would all agree on. I like chocolate. And then, yeah, that would be about 80%. It, yeah, it's like, I like chocolate, and if I send someone to D.C., they should eventually come back. <laughs> like, no. That's like about the only two things I can agree on. How do you get them to vote on something that would limit them? That's literally so counterintuitive. Well, my, my big uh, proposal, Joel, is term limits for members of Congress, but current, uh, current members are exempt or grandfathered in. So if you're a current legislator, you might get on board with this because you're like, well, like doesn't affect me. <laughs> and, uh, and it turns out Strom Thurmond was actually still alive and he was like, it's fine with me. I'm 125 now. And yeah. How long did he last? He was like there when he was 94, something like that. Yeah, he, he got up there. Uh, so those are some of the big structural fixes. Uh, if there's something that I'm excited about right now that's sweeping the nation, it is um, ranked choice voting because some states are voting on it right now. Um, I think Massachusetts is going to pass it. Maine already has it. Um, 
I think Seattle and New York City have it too, not statewide, but um, but in the cities. So when voters find out about ranked choice voting, they, they love it, they get excited because everyone realizes it's just a better expression of preference and it's a better democracy. It's just a higher functioning democracy if you can just say, look, I like this person first, this person second, this person third, and then after that, I refuse to even express a preference because I hate everyone else. Like that's fine, you know, so, like that that would that would work. That would have worked wonders um, over the last number of uh, presidential cycles too, to be honest with you. Because if you look at what was going on in the Republican primary in 2016, uh, Trump was Trump won those primaries, but he wasn't getting 50% in a lot of the places. You know, there, there were a lot of places early on where it's like Trump with, with his crowd, but then there were, you know, whatever, six or seven other candidates and they were splitting up the rest. If you had ranked choice voting, it might be that someone else would have emerged on top. Yeah, no, I don't... I, and it's one of those things when you say it, you're like, yeah, why isn't it? It seems so, it's such a, it seems so logical. It seems like, yeah, well, that's, that seems like such a, well, that's what you do. If you, you if you're in a boat, you need an oar because that makes you move. Like, right. That seems perfectly reasonable. And, and it doesn't seem that complicated at all. Yeah, it's not when people find out about ranked choice voting, um, it ends up winning everything because everyone looks at him is like, well, that just seems better. That's more logical. Like, we should just do that. Uh, and right now, the, the only resistance is from, frankly, uh, folks who are currently in, in power who like the 94 percent reelection rate. who are like, oh, no, like this is going to complicate Love my it. life. <laughs> like, I've, I've got my million dollar moat all set up. I could just like yeah. I could just crouch here forever in the current system. Um, so, uh, but the average voter loves it. And if we can get that done for anyone who wants a more vibrant democracy or is thinking that there's a need for a third party in the United States of America or other major parties, because the current two party system might not be, uh, humming, uh, then you should just get behind ranked choice voting because the great thing about it is it's nonpartisan bipartisan. It's like, look, it's just better process, better democracy, but it ends up enabling, uh, more dynamic uh, third party candidates as well, because then the third party candidate can show up and be like, don't worry, you're not going to help that person you hate get elected or like you're not going to be wasting your vote and you can still vote for me. <laughs> and, and like people because right now that that argument actually is very, very powerful on people. It's like no one wants to help, um, you know, the person they like the least get elected. Massachusetts, Seattle, New York have it. Uh, Massachusetts is voting on it right now. Um, Maine has it. Uh, and then New York and Seattle, I believe, just recently adopted it or are voting on it. Right. Yeah. And they got to get rid of, you know, the the college, you know, the uh, what do you call it? The uh, electoral college. Yeah, that is. I, I st And I, I know this is why I feel right about this is because even when I was six years old and they were explaining governance to me and I was just like, what? I'm so confused. Why is it called a college? A. B. Uh, what is the point of it? And I couldn't, I still to this day are like, so we, and, and it doesn't make any sense at all. And I get that it has benefited both parties. It has benefited the Republican party most recently uh, with like Bush, Gore, and obviously Trump, uh, Clinton, but it's benefited the Democrats at some point. Uh, but I still, to this day, it's just like the popular vote seems as simple Occam's razor. That is the straightest thing line to electing the most popular person. 
So here's my proposal for the electoral college reform that I think would make everyone happy. Uh, so the one problem with trying to abolish it is that you need a constitutional uh, amendment, supermajority to, to do it. And you'd have a dozen states that are like, wait a minute, I'm less influential under, you know, the popular vote system because I'm Nebraska, I'm Montana, like, you know, like the electoral college helps me. So so then you so you run into a very, very practical problem where it's like, I'll never get this changed because there are a lot of people that'll be shooting themselves in the foot. Um, there, there's a there's a legitimate reason too, which which is that, let's say we had popular vote and I was running for president, which I did. Thank you, everyone who supported me. I really appreciate it. Andrew Yang. Uh, then I, I would never leave uh, a major media market. I would always be in a major media market because I just get more votes. Yeah. And then if I went if I went to some less populated area, it'd just be a waste of time. Um, now, right now, like the balance might be excessive in a particular direction, but you know, I don't, I'm not sure it'd be optimal for us just to be uh, campaigning on the coast or in the big cities. So the the change that would that's practical and doable that most everyone should get behind that would also help ease this problem is you make it so that the electoral college awards its votes not winner take all by state, but proportionally by state. So in other words, uh, if you know, if, if California has 40 uh, electoral votes or more, then they get uh, awarded proportional to how men, how much I won that state by. So instead of getting all of them, I'd get 60% of them uh, or something along those lines. And if you did that, then all of a sudden the incentives for national candidates would be to campaign anywhere they can actually move the margin instead of just campaigning in Ohio, Michigan, Florida, um, you know, North Carolina, Arizona, like Wisconsin, like the handful of swing states. It's funny, Joel, because I was in Iowa a lot because I was running for president. Um, and it was wall to wall campaign ads. You know, you turn on the TV, I'd get to the hotel, I'd turn on that TV, and it was like Bloomberg, Elizabeth Warren, uh, me sometimes, which is really entertaining being in a hotel room to see your presidential ad pop up and yeah. be like, oh, I remember shooting that. Nice work, team. That was good. Uh, and and then if if you get, go to another media market, it's like zero because you know no one cares about. No, like, I grew up in Washington State where nobody ever came to because they knew that it was always going to be blue, so no one ever showed up. It was great. So this is a reform that most states could get behind because they're like, hey, I'd like some love. I'd like some attention. Why are you always just like throwing shit at Florida like all the time? Like, you know, <laughs> like give some love this way. Uh, and it it ends up creating a, a more fair system so that, you know, if, if you did win the popular vote under the system that um, that I'm describing, like the odds of your winning the Electoral College, too, would be quite high because you'd get like the proportional. So it, it lines them up somewhat, but it also makes it so that no state is losing um, the way that they would lose if you were to abolish the electoral college entirely, um, it might it would actually make some of the non-swing states uh, be more important uh, for political considerations. I really need to go to your. Uh, I don't know, your retreat or subscribe to your newsletter because I'm learning a lot. And no, but that makes perfect sense. Proportional to what the state is actually, what people are actually saying, would that would make a candidate go have to campaign in everywhere. And uh, or that, which again, now you'd be even more stressed out because you'd be spending another two years on the road while you're 50 state strategy. <laughs> That's not right, Joel. I didn't get enough visiting 
just those uh, those early primary states. I missed out. Idaho, coming your way. Look, your background. Did you major in political science, or are you just you know, gathering? I, I uh, I studied economics and political science, and then I went to law school, which in my case, like, was maybe not the best choice. Um, but I, you know, I have spent some time um, in the process too. I learned a lot by running too, because the the entrepreneurial process we were talking about before. Like I was a startup guy, an entrepreneur. Decided that the you invented was you invented the scrunchie or Spanx? I can't um, remember. Definitely not Spanx because Sarah Blakely is much more successful than I am. <laughs> I'm wearing them now. <laughs> That's why you look so sharp, Joel. Uh, but it, it was like another startup where you show up and you're like, okay, like what are the rules? What what do I have to do? Uh, so I, I figured out. So there are only two rules for running for president. So you could definitely do it, Joel. Uh, it's oh. 35 years or older uh, and natural born citizen. So it's like check and check. And I'm not a natural born citizen. <laughs> oh, shit. I didn't know that. You're out. I was born in Rome, Italy and uh, to an American and to a Canadian. So I'm out. I think you still might might be in. Uh, well, because I'm not American, I, I, too, but. Well, because I think like Ted Cruz got was born in Canada or something and like, you know, didn't keep him from running um, so that there was there's something up like natural born citizen doesn't mean like uh, like Greek myth, uh, 48 state type thing. <laughs> I, I don't know. Like we'd have to dig into your your actual, uh, you know, circumstances. What's the other natural born citizen? And then the other rule is you have to 35 years and older, 35 years or say, older. shirt and shoes and pants. But uh, yeah, well, OK. Then I'll I'll be a running mate. Let's do it. <laughs> so yeah, Yang McHale. It, and the the tagline would be not the darkest timeline. Yang McHale, not the darkest timeline. Yeah. And then I'd be like, eat it, Ken. And then every once in a while for campaign events, Ken would swap in for me. <laughs> and then I would just go go. Wait, that seems slightly racist. Yeah, it's okay if I say it though. Uh, That's true. So, so, true. So the, Thank you. So there are, those are the only two rules. And so it, it turns out that um, all of the rules we think of were primarily uh, just things the media agreed on at various points where uh, and even this cycle. Um, so most Americans probably heard of approximately, let's call it 24 candidates. 24 would be if you were paying close attention. I take that back. Most Americans have probably heard of approximately 10 candidates. Uh, uh but the reality was that hundreds of people filed to run for president this time. You just never heard of most of them. Uh, and I actually went digging just for fun where I like saw all the people and some of them were joke filings. Uh, some of them were like the Dark Lord or like whoever, <laughs> you know, I mean, so they're pretty funny. Like, you know, if anyone takes inspiration from this, it is like oh, I could run some like funny uh, presidential ca campaign. Um, when I filed as an example, like it got absolutely zero notice because it's just like Andrew Yang is running for president. It's like, who gives a shit? Like no, no one knows who that was because it's like November 2017. Um, so the rules around filing are very, very loose uh, where there's really no restriction on who can run. Um, the, the problem then is generating any real resources or attention for your campaign. Um, and obviously the vast majority of these hundreds of people that filed don't raise a dime. No one's ever heard of them. They filed as a joke. <laughs> there were people that actually went out there and said, I'm running for president. Like, I want to give everyone money and the robots are coming, et cetera. Like, I mean, that's obviously describes a particular candidate. Uh, and so 
Um, so it, it's interesting, Joel, to reflect upon the fact that uh, you know, my candidacy ended up raising tens of millions and like uh, got a lot of uh, attention and I, I became a contender. Uh, and in a way, it's only now looking at it that I appreciate um, just how uh, how much that took. Like, like looking at the hundreds of people that filed anonymously <laughs> and then disappeared. Um, so the, the rules are primarily social, is what I'm suggesting. That the, the actual rules, just about anyone can satisfy, but the, the real rules are the um, institutional rules, the media rules, the DNC's rules in this case. Uh, and so the DNC, this was another entrepreneurship thing. The DNC set rules up to make the debates. And then I was like, what's the rule? What's the rule? Like 65,000 donations. <laughs> All right, let's go do that. Let's go do that. Like it was, it was a lot of fun on that level as a campaign because they would like set up a bar for you. And then you were like, let's go get it. Wow. Um, and would the Democrat, like who's ever in charge, they'd be like, well, you did good on that. Okay, good. Now, if you do the next one, you get a star on your briefcase. So go ahead. I mean, when when did they finally start noticing you? When you're like, oh, this guy's actually not messing around and he's going to do something. When did that, when did someone call you and be like, all right, good news. You, you're, you're, you're in, you're, you, you've, you've, you've done enough so far. We did have a line of communication going with the DNC uh, during the campaign, and, and you know, it was I'd say cordial uh, was the is the word I'd use. But what was funny, Joel, is that um, they were setting the lines up relatively late in the day, or like the bars that you have to clear. Uh, and so someone like there was a point in the campaign where like, they were trying to figure out what the debate threshold is going to be for what like this is pretty late in the, the day. Um, like maybe the ninth debate or what, like one of the early state debates. Um, and then someone asked me what I thought the threshold was going to be. And I said, whatever Tulsi has plus two <laughs> or something like that, because they, they, they legitimately would look at the field and be like, who do I want in this thing? Who do I not want in this thing? And be like, let's just turn the dial to here. Right. Um, but the, the, but the funny thing about it for me was that I was passing people that we knew they wanted in the debate. Um, so as long as I did that, it was like the old joke about like, you know, I don't need to outrun the bear. I just need to outrun the person next to me. <laughs> like, right. like as long as I was outrunning someone that I knew they wanted to keep, then like I, I, I was going to be all right. That's so funny. That's such a great analogy to describe that because it is weird for us at home where they're like, here's the here's like the here's the varsity. Uh, and then here's JV. Oh, that JV guy, he got up to varsity, and then that one varsity guy, he's down to freshman basketball. And so that's it's it's a weird thing to because I'm like I don't because you take it for granted when this way when it's all being worked out. And yeah, I, I can't oh, imagine I, the effort. I, I, well, thank you again, everyone who made it happen. But I benefited tremendously from these rules, Joel. There were some candidates that were hurt by them grievously uh, because if it because if you were not able to make that stage then all of a sudden everyone um, treated you like you had zero chance to win and zero business running uh, and so some of the candidates that got left in the cold by that were I'm going to call out Steve Bullock the governor of Montana he got in late uh, and he got in late in part because he was trying to pass some legislation in Montana so who's doing his job and I, you know, you got to give him credit for doing his job. And then he showed up late, and then he didn't make. I think it was the third debate. And then after that, he was uh, it was he was done for more or less. 
because at that point you can't get critical mass because like everyone's like, well, you weren't in that debate. And they, they just use the debate as like the filter. Um, so I benefited tremendously because I kept making them and, and they and they got raised in the bar and like the team was like, all right, what do we got to do? What do we got to do? It, it was, uh, it was, it was great fun. Um, but the, so whatever, and you know, there were some candidates that were left out in the cold by it though, that, you know, I, I think deserved, um, deserved a better look frankly from the american people and that was one of the fun things joel too about running is that i would actually hang out with all these people individually because like you know you're in iowa new hampshire you just see them hang out with them and and so you get a sense of them kind of the way you and i like you know just having this conversation like you get a sense of someone uh and then you see something in the media and it's totally different than what you thought like the reality was because you're like i was just with that person like they were fine <laughs> you know <laughs> or, or i really like them like uh, that person was awesome and then they get treated like uh, like a joke sometimes and you're like, I actually thought that person was terrific. Um, so it, 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 it was funny having that, um, that set of experiences. Yeah. How often would you find that, that that would be the case where, Oh, they seem perfectly normal or great and cool and intelligent and cool. And then I guess it's not immediate perception, but like, Oh, they're doing something horrible. They're, they're passing something care. Like, They've done this terrible thing, like in their state or something. Does that happen a lot? Not saying like a crime, but just like, oh yeah, you don't want to, you don't want to deal with them, uh, and then uh, then they get you away from them. Yeah, uh, it it did happen, Joel. And I, I wrote something where I talked about, in particular, the media treatment of Marianne Williamson and Joe Sestak. And um, Joe Sestak is like a real life Captain America figure. He was like the aircraft. He was the commander of like a naval um aircraft carrier group which is thousands and thousands of people and lives uh has i believe he has a phd from harvard graduated maybe third in his class in the naval uh, academy he's like a superman um he was two-term congressman from pennsylvania he at one point because he was so um like uh in need of attention, he walked across the state of New Hampshire as, during the primary just to like meet people and try and get attention uh, because the media was just ignoring him completely. And when when I met him, I was like, this guy's awesome. This guy's great. Like you you can see how he commanded thousands and thousands of soldiers. And it's just like, like he, he'd be a better president than uh, a significant number of other people that are running for sure. Uh, and the media just would not give him the time of day at all. And when they did talk about him, they treated him like a joke. They'd be like, "What? What's quiet? Why, why is this man running?" Kind of thing. I was like, "Well, maybe because he's a patriot and an ass kicker." Was was what I always thought. <laughs> like, like whenever I saw the, those stories. Uh, so so that was one thing where I was just like, "Man, like the the uh, depiction does not line up with my sense of who hmm. these people are." Uh, wonder why do you think that you were able to push through so effectively? And someone like that has to run across a state. Oh, I think that I was very much of the moment, Joel. And certainly I'd love to hear from you, like how you ended up um, encountering me in my campaign. But uh, there was a period of time when it seemed like the media presented me as like the Internet candidate. Uh, like I think that I was a very uh, modern candidate in a way that someone like Joe uh, was more a candidate of like a, you know, frankly, like a, a more establishment friendly time. Um, I, I think right now there are many Americans who don't think our institutions are functioning that well. Uh, and they were completely open to the new entrepreneurial type who had a different message and a different approach. 
Um, and I used a medium to communicate that. One of the things I said to folks is I would never have gone anywhere if not for podcasts. You know, there was a long period of time when cable news was kind of ignoring me. And then I would go on, um, uh, um, I would go on Sam Harris's podcast or I'd go on, I mean, obviously Joe Rogan was, uh, enormous. Um, and that was through Sam. So, you know, I owe Sam like a, a great debt, um, so I came up via podcasts and 21st century media. And I think that is one of the reasons why I got that critical mass and momentum and some of the other candidates didn't. I noticed you, I remember noticing it because, okay, I think it was during a debate when Elizabeth Warren asked everyone on stage to pledge that they would, it was either tax like they would just take 10%, like all, it was either, they have make all the billionaires just give a huge amount of their money, if I'm wrong. And then they- It was a wealth tax. Yeah, yeah wealth tax. Yeah. And you were like, the first, they were like, what do you think? And you're like, no, they tried that in Northern Europe. It didn't work. And that was the first, I was like, oh, this is, I was very, I was like, oh, I can't, I can't wait to hear. And then you explained it so well. And I was like, yeah, that, that makes sense. That, that that was that was a really amazing moment. Thank you, Joel, for remembering that. Uh, that that's those were, yeah. The debates were really a great catalyst for for me in the campaign because you and other families around the country were like, "Who's that guy? He said something I kind of like. Let me look that up." Like my my campaign every time would tell me what like the Google search results or the web traffic results were um, after each debate. Uh, so I was you know going for those numbers honestly. Um, like the, the big traffic spike we saw was when we gave money away that one time, <laughs> we were like, we're going to give 10 families a thousand bucks a month just to, because like, that's actually a better move than anything, wow. or, um, anything else. And and I got off the stage and they were like, you know, you would not believe Like we apparently got like millions of hits, like, uh, immediately after I said, this, said those words. What you have to do is give away huge amounts of money. <laughs> that was, it was like, and, and the press freaking derided that move on the debate stage as like a gimmick uh, and and whatnot like they they lambasted me uh for days afterwards uh anyone who evaluated the debate was like biggest loser like andrew yang or whatever and then i was like uh, then i was like well i thought the goal was to actually win this thing <laughs> and, 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 and like i i think like people actually you know becoming curious about me enough to go to the website sort of like an important step towards like getting people interested in winning um so so that there was like a sort of strange uh kind of rules of the road that uh you know anytime i violated or even when i didn't wear a tie freaking you know some journalist freaked out first time and then eventually that got normal (laughs) all those stupid little things and you're like yeah god forbid you don't wear a tie Oh my lord! Imagine the first dude, because I say dude because women weren't allowed, but like didn't wear a, like a wig, you know, one of those dumb wigs. They must have been like, "What are you doing? What is? What is? What do you think you're at home?" They're like, yeah, I just don't want to wear the wig, you know, the uh, the the seventeen seventy six wig or whatever. Uh, yeah, well, that was the that was the end of the wigs party, Joel. The wigs party. <laughs> I'm gonna start it up again. That would be great. We should go old school. The new party should be the wigs, and then everyone just wear one of those old school 1776 like right. uh, gray hair wigs. That'd be uh, badass. That'd be so great. 
<laughs> and, and also the rule is you had to smell as bad as they did back then because they must have i mean think about when they were like in those government in those buildings with no air conditioning and they're all wearing wigs and covered in wool it must have just they must have gotten so much done because it smelled so bad and they just like pass it we got to get out of here and get some fresh air Yet another innovation from the mind of Joel McHale. It's like trap them in the room, poor yeah. hygiene. Turn up the heat. Stuff. Turn up the heat, and then yeah, and no deodorant, and then they'll get they'll pass everything in a second. It'd be great. Well, thank you for doing this, Joel. Uh, do you have anything you're working on um, right now that that you want folks to to see? Well, Card Sharks comes out on the 18th of October. I'll be. I might be appearing on Mass Singer. I'm not sure if I can tell that. I'm, I'm on Ken's new show. Um, I can see your voice. And I'm on a, a DC show called um, Stargirl, where I play Starman. And uh, so that looks like that's going to be coming back. And, you know, in the meantime, I got to do a voiceover for the NFL last night, and I've never been happier in my life. So uh, I, I basically got to introduce the Patriots Seahawks game through a voiceover and I was just I was like a boyhood dream come true well keep an eye out for Joel McHale and his voice can we do a podcast where I host it and I just asked you questions the whole time yeah of course you know I'll bounce back and, uh, and and do that man I am an able both host and guest Andrew Yang versatile oh no I <laughs> no because whenever you talk I'm always like I hadn't thought about it that way and absolutely and so that's, that's, I, I swear, I'm just, I would, yeah, it's like uh, how it used to be uh, back in Greeks, Greece, where Socrates, the, the students would just ask the questions the whole time instead of Socrates going like, here's what we're going to learn. You're like, no, 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 just start asking questions and you're going to, you're going to know everything after that. I love it, brother. Well, I'll, I'll let you uh, go be a dad. Thank you for doing this. And uh, let's keep trying to uplift people and make good things happen for 2020. This terrible year is going to end. And then 2021 will hopefully be a whole new page for all of us. Yes. From your lips to God's ears. Yeah, I, you are. Uh, I am such a big fan of your huge brain and heart. Oh, thank you, brother. Appreciate the heck out of you. We, you know, we all just need to head in, head in a better direction. Thanks for doing this, Joel. All the best to the family. Thanks, man. Great to talk to you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for having me.